The Triathlon Show 341. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode I interview Dr. Louis Passfield. Louis is a professor at the University of Calgary and also at the University of Kent, and he has done a lot of work recently in his lab on training load, and that is what today's interview will center around, a quantification of training load, the validity of current training load metrics, future directions, practical advice, and so on. We'll get onto that topic right after thanking our sponsors, Precision Fuel and, Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Uh, yeah, I want to mention once again that uh, Precision Fuel and Hydration have a bunch of case studies on their website with athletes they have been working with. You can filter for a lot of different things. So, for example, if an athlete is a heavy sweater or a salty sweater or has a low sweat sodium concentration, you can filter for temperature, hot, cold weather, moderate weather for humidity humid or dry dry climates and so on and so forth and while you shouldn't take these strategies and directly copy them to yourself it can be a great tool for you to validate uh, something that you have come up with based on your own testing and trial and error in training and your research and so on and then the final step can be to take your strategy and have a free video consultation with the team and you can schedule that on their website and uh, then the team at precision fuel and hydration can help you uh, confirm if your strategy seems to be uh, be on point for your racing remember that you can get 15% off your first order of products by using the code tts22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com and uh, thank you to roca roca produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits tri suits swimskins goggles and performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses uh, today, I want to talk about Roka's range of wetsuits, and uh, Roka have a range of wetsuits from the entry-level Maverick that is extremely high quality for an entry-level price, all the way up to their flagship uh, wetsuit, which is the Maverick X2. All of these uh, models come with the patented arm up technology uh, that Roka is very famous for, uh, which allows you to swim with uh, maximum shoulder mobility without any restriction, especially uh, assuming that you're also using a Roka tri-suit, which also have that arm up technology. Uh, Roka's wetsuits also have patented buoyancy profiles for the fastest possible body position in the water. And uh, if you're struggling with uh, body position, then the MX Max Buoyancy wetsuit is the most buoyant wetsuit of all of Roka's uh, wetsuits, and it's actually a really good price as well for an extremely good wetsuit so that can be worth checking out if you're uh, somebody who tends to sink and your legs tend to sink when you're swimming there are a ton of other fantastic features so be sure to check out the details on roca.com and remember that you can get 20 percent off your entire roca order by visiting roca.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with louis passfield Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Louis. How are you doing? Michael, hello. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a great pleasure. Uh, I've been following you for a long time on Twitter and uh, seeing some of the things you put out and some of the research that you've been doing. And, and one of the recent papers that you published uh, really piqued my interest, so we'll get into that uh, in more detail. But first, can you please introduce yourself to the audience and tell us more about yourself? 
<laughs> it would be a pleasure, Michael. And uh, it's it's funny to to be thought of as being followed on Twitter. I I, I try to contribute on there when I can, but I wouldn't. Uh, I couldn't confess to being a very regular on Twitter. But I do try and put things on there that I think will be uh, useful or helpful for people. Um, my my own background. Well, I I typically start by um, saying that um, I was a keen cyclist, and my what brought me into um, science in general was that I wanted to win the Tour de France. Uh, and so I studied sports science. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I learned two very hard lessons by studying sports science and trying to apply it to my own training in order to win the tour. The, the first was that science didn't have all the answers I was looking for. Um, and that's still the case today. So p- please be prepared for you to answer, ask me some questions and for the answer to be, I don't know, because I- even those questions that took me in 30, 40 years ago st- still bug me today. Um, and the other one is that um, is you, you're not inviting me on here as the Tour de France champion. Um, and that's not just because of a lack of knowledge. It's probably also a lack of talent as well. So uh, I, I, I found I found um, some very hard lessons very early on in my career. Yeah, you, lear- that, that's you, you, lear- you learned that you, you picked your parents poorly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to blame them entirely. But but um, what, what one of the interesting things for me was that um, after I graduated, I did find myself in the Olympic training camp. But I was there as a scientist rather than as an, as an athlete. Uh, and, and I was watching these young junior cyclists compete, uh, sat next to the national coach. Uh, and I realized that they were already performing at a, ladder, at a level of performance that was far above what I could achieve. And I'd been training seriously and through my whole or through my, the period of my studies as well for um, a good number of years. And so I kind of realized that these young um, male and female athletes are only 16, 17 years old were already outperforming me. And it couldn't have been because they'd done more training because they just hadn't had enough time to do more training. So there must have been something else at play as well. So that, that was a, that was a harsh, a harsh lesson for me in one way. But, um, it, it also fueled my interest in applied sports science uh, and helping others. And so for the next few years, I worked with, um, British cycling, helping uh, support and prepare the athletes for major championships like the Olympic Games, World Championships, Commonwealth Games, that, that kind of thing. Um, and um, at the same time, trying to do some academic studies. That was a difficult balance. And so in the end, I, um, I have an on-off relationship with British cycling. I left British cycling after the Atlanta Olympics, um, studied my, for my, uh, my own PhD, looking at cycling, endurance cycling in particular, and then um, went back into academia as a lecturer uh, and then was asked to go back to British cycling and help them prepare for the Beijing Olympics. Since the Beijing Olympics, um, I, my work on the applied side has been a little bit more in supporting other uh, scientists rather than athletes necessarily. So I, I continue to coach a couple of athletes, but uh, after Beijing, I w- it was less hands-on and more acting as a mentor to some of the younger sports scientists that come through. And that, that's very much the situation I find myself in today. So I've been a professor at the University of Kent and I'm now um, also attached to the University of Calgary, which is where I'm talking to you from. Um, but I also do a little bit of work with a scientist that work for the English Institute, Institute of Sport, whose job is to provide the physiology support for the uh, British Olympic team. And then I've done various bits and pieces of work for, for example, um, speed skating team out here in Calgary, one of the um, Winter Olympic teams, uh, and, and then um, various uh, cyclists at all sorts of levels, from kind of professionals down to uh, keen amateur cyclists. Mm. And I'm just curious, uh, why is it that you found yourself drawn perhaps more to the academic side than, than the applied side, which it seems, it seems to be the case based on what you have been doing recently? Um, 
I, I guess it's probably more that the so I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily how I would describe myself, um, but for sure there's a um, there's a greater emphasis on the, on the academic side in more recent years. So I when when I moved to the University of Kent in 2008, then I took on a, a significant academic role. So I was head of school. I was charged with conducting regular research, setting up research teams, uh, worked with some fantastic colleagues there who who themselves were very prolific people like James Hopker. And so I think that part of my work is very visible. Whereas, for example, the work that I do with the scientists with the English Institute of Sport, it's a part-time thing that I do alongside my academic job. And it's not, it's not seen, it's not visible. So you could speak to physiologists who work with, for example, the British Olympic cycling team now, or even um, randomly the British sailing team or the um, triathlon team or so on. And they could tell you a little bit about the work that I do with the scientists to help them do their job better. But it, it's, that's not highly visible. It's not something I really um, promote or am able to promote. All right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and and maybe we'll get into that. It could be an inter interesting question for the end of the interview to uh, ask you if there are a couple of things that you have found that where you can help other scientists and physiologists to to help their athletes better. But we can save that for the end of the of the interview. And uh, sure, let's get into sure. the main the main topic of today, which is training load. And uh, so you wrote uh, a paper where you dis uh, discussed the training load concept, the validity of it, and proposed some future directions for research. And I'll link to that in the show notes, so people can go and have a look and read it if they want to. Can you start by maybe discussing the uh, what is the training load concept, so defining it, and then briefly discussing the history of it? Yes, yeah. So it, it's interesting. I was I was delighted to come on the show and talk about this topic, but at the same time, I recognize that it's a it has the potential to be a rather geeky, nerdy um, numbers type thing, and I'm trying to I'm keen to avoid that if if possible, um, just for the benefit of your listeners who might not be quite so um, interested in numbers as I am. But but also to say that um, I recognize that training at the end of the day comes down to making decisions. And a key part of decision making is our emotions. You know, this, so often we say, you know, well, the logic or the data analysis suggested we do X, but we've actually chosen to do Y because X didn't feel right. It didn't seem like the right decision. So much as I'm tightly wedded to numbers and like to reach a, a kind of logical or numerical um, perspective, I recognize that when it comes to things like training, it's it's much more complex than that. So I just kind of wanted to start off by by, by saying that. So having said that, then thinking about training itself, typically the training process requires us to to um, quantify how much training an athlete is going to do. Either the athlete is doing that for themselves, or they've got a coach that's providing them with a training program, and it's in some way saying, "I want you to do X amount of training." Um, and then once they've done that training, we want to keep track of how much training an athlete has done, so that we can evaluate how effective it is. Because I imagine most people want to have the as close to an optimal program as they can. So there's a sense of you know we can give somebody an effective training program, and we try and make it increasingly effective. So in order to make it effective, we need to do some kind of comparison, what they've done uh, against what was prescribed or what they've done over what previously worked, or looking at the science and saying, what has scientific studies shown us about different training interventions and how effective they are? So typically what we do is try and quantify that training. And that's really very broadly what I mean by training load. It's how much training has somebody done. Um, and 
that most people point from a scientific basis to um, for the history of training low concept to a scientist called Bannister, Eric Bannister, uh, Canadian. I think he largely worked out of Vancouver. Um, and um, what he did was suggest that it may be possible to sum up the amount of training that's an athlete completes and then predict the impact that that has on their performance. And he did a number of studies lo looking at this where he, he added up the amount of training. And in, in adding it up, what he did was uh, um, use uh, an artificial number, which he constructed called a TRIMP, standing for a training impulse. And so essentially, he, he took the amount of weight training that a swimmer did, and he kind of made a calculation of how much, how much they, di they did in terms of weight training, converted that to TRIMPs. And then took their swim training, the distances and the intensities they did, converted that to trims, and then added it all up in order to say, okay, the total number, uh, the total amount of training this swimmer has done in these trims is this amount. But then he was able to use that trim mo model to predict their changes in performance. And of course, because they were swimmers, he could actually track their performance as well. And so he was able to show that you can actually get surprisingly reasonable predictions of someone's um, performance by tracking their training. So that was kind of the, the start of that, that, that whole movement. It's, it's gone in various different directions from there. So today, typically, not many people try to predict performance in the same way that Bannister did. But, but a lot of what people still do harks back to that initial work. And that was done in the 70s. And that initial work, uh, when when he constructed those trims, uh, was it based on heart rate, or or how was it uh, as the as the intensity yes. measure and then duration as the well, yeah. duration? Well, the, the story evolved over a period of time. So we're back in the nineteen seventies. Unless you were exclusively exercising in a lab, it was difficult to measure heart rate. Believe it or not. So I can remember playing around with heart rate monitors in the early nineties and being able to do novel research just by being able to put a watch on somebody's wrist and gather their heart rate from a race. So it's only in recent years that we've got the the opportunity to do that from a a long term historical perspective. Um, and so Bannister didn't start off using heart rate, but he introduced that later on in his studies. So um, most people think of trims being associated with heart rate, and, and Bannister really introduced that in about in the early nineties rather than in the nineteen seventies. So early on, he was just counting the the distance swum, how hard the the coach prescribed that that those intervals uh, as well as um, the amount of weight they lifted in the gym so it was as simple as as that yeah so and then so in the 90s and, and in the 2000s then other scientists have also contributed can can you yeah explain a little bit on the, on the different directions that things have gone and of course there are also mm -hmm. now different commercial versions of uh, of training loads so yeah where, where do you think we are today and how did we get here yeah well, uh, so essentially, the, the trimp is still with us in, in that it, you, you will find e even some of the um, online um, websites will, will calculate your trimps for you and report them for you. Um, we also see it now manifest as things like acute and chronic training loads uh, metrics um, and then a variety of other things like the training stress score um, or predicted recovery times from your watches, whether you use a, a Polar or a Garmin watch, those, those kind of things. These are all kind of different manifestations of how hard you're, you're training. And then we may divide our training time up into different training zones as well. And then we can have a debate about how those zones are constructed too. But these are all different kinds of ways of, of trying to put um, a, a number to the amount of training. And then, then another one that I haven't mentioned that, that comes up quite a bit as well is the um, normalized power score as 
well. So rather than just your average power output for a training session, if you're cycling, uh, there's a, a normalized power that you can get from it too. So these kinds of metrics that, that quantify how much training we've done is, is kind of where we find ourselves today. Yeah. And, and bring it back to the big picture, uh, training load. That it's meant to, be, to do what? So we talked about predicting performance, yes. but you also said that uh, not a lot of people necessarily do that today. And other than that, it's just about quantifying what you have done or how, how do you view it, it? Exactly. Well, I think, I think it's probably both um, looking at what, what the athlete is being asked to do and then evaluating what they've done. So the training load is something that inherently you have to calculate, even if you don't recognize it, when you write out a program. Because you're trying to give an athlete the appropriate training dose. And so in some way or other, you're calculating how much training they have to do. So up front in the program, you can think of the training load as being represented by what's in the training program that an athlete is offered, the total amount of work that they're being asked to do and how they're being asked to do that. And then retrospectively, once you've done it as an athlete or as a coach or a scientist, you're looking at the history of what they've done. And, and then using that to try and make some inferences about the condition the athlete finds themselves in. So, for example, you're concerned that after a very hard session, they may be tired and they may need more recovery. Or if they've accumulated a lot of hard training over a period of time, they may need a few days off. Um, you might be worried about injury or illness or nutritional requirements, those kinds of things. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why we're interested in how much training an athlete does. So on the one hand, optimizing their performance by giving them the right training program up front, and then afterwards tracking what they've done in case we need to modify the program or um, um, modify some interventions around the training to support them in what they're doing. Yeah. And, and when, when you say, I, that makes total sense. And when, when you say that, even if you don't think about it or calculate the training load, it is inherently in the program. Just to clarify for the listeners, uh, think about writing a, a program for a runner and and then on a tuesday you give them a, a 10 kilometer uh, tempo run uh, or or something like that then maybe you think that okay on wednesday they will be a bit tired so i'll give them an, an eight kilometer easy run then, then you're already in, intuitively you're thinking of training load even though you're not quantifying it but the quantification of it is what's kind of what we're talking about here of different ways that uh, that we have attempted to quantify the combination of duration and intensity intensity usually Thank you. And that, that's a perfect example. That's, that's exactly what I mean by quantifying it. So yes, you, you're saying your hard 10K run, it, it, you're, giving, you're ascribing it notionally an, uh, a number that says it's harder than the easy 8K run. So you've made some kind of comparison between those two. And it's the way we make those comparisons that, that then becomes interesting. Because in the example you've given, the differentiation between those, those two sessions is fairly straightforward. We can see that one is both longer and more intense than the other. So it's easy to spot the harder one. But if I said to you, um, which is tougher, a five-minute all-out effort or a 20-minute all-out effort, now it becomes a little trickier because they're both all-out efforts. They're just of different durations. Hmm. And the fact that your five-minute effort is, uh, is shorter, you can compensate for that by actually going harder. So if you measure somebody's power output or their running speed, of course, it will be higher for the five-minute effort than the 20-minute effort. So the question then becomes, well, which of those two sessions is, is um, more challenging? And that's more difficult to answer. Yeah. So, so let's get on to yeah, that, the different attempts at validate uh, different training load concepts. What, and this is something that you reviewed in, in the paper you published. So yeah, can you tell us more about that? What, what is the evidence that exists or doesn't exist out there? 
So the, the, the surprising thing we uh, that that um, myself and colleagues have noted is that um, training training load has a scientific background to it. So there, there's a lot of practitioners using training load in different ways, particularly working with team sports, but also individual athletes as well, and using a, range, a wide range of different metrics. So there appears to be some science behind it. But when we went back and really carefully looked at the literature, there wasn't really any point in the past where you could say that the concepts that we're drawing upon had been really validated scientifically in a careful, rigorous way. And so there were some holes that were evident from a scientific basis. Now, if you were an experienced coach or athlete, at this point, you'd be rolling your eyes because actually you'd say, I could have told you this from an experiential point of view as a coach or an athlete for a long time, because there's been some very obvious mismatches in terms of um, what the science would tell me versus my own practical experience. It was quite clearly that the, science, the supposedly scientific numbers were wrong. So in a way, what we're doing is playing catch up with what practitioners and experienced athletes have known for, for, for many years. Um, but it was interesting that the scientific process had, had gone on for, uh, so Bannister did that original work in the 70s. So we're now nearly 50 years in fast forward, and we still haven't picked up on the fact that some of these methods that were originally proposed haven't actually been rigorously tested from a scientific basis. And the problem with that is just that then um, habits, traditions, and things like that kick in, and people keep doing the same things all the time, rather than looking to change or innovate necessarily. And actually what we're saying is if we look more critically at what's happened, we may find reasons to change things and to innovate. And by looking critically at what's happened, we might also be able to spot which directions we need to go in. So that's kind of the scientific story behind it. Um, specifically, the, the difficulty becomes as well, how do you judge how hard a session is? And, and this is where you end, end up risking falling into a kind of circular argument, because you, what you do is you say, well, let's look at heart rate, for example, as an indication of how hard that, that training session is. But heart rate also forms your training metric. And so actually, you're, you're, what, what you're doing is saying, well, we've chosen to look at heart rate, so we're using heart rate as our training load metric, but you haven't actually proved that, train, that heart rate is the most appropriate way of evaluating how hard the training is. So with my colleagues, what we thought was, well, let's just strip this down to a really simple level and do some very obvious kind of experimental work. And we'll judge how hard a session is by just getting someone to do a performance test after the training session. So if it's a really hard training session, your performance after the training session will drop quite a bit. If it's an easy training session, then your performance won't drop so much. So what we'll do is we'll give people a range of different training sessions, ask them to do a performance trial afterwards. So we can see how hard it was in terms of how much their performance changes. And then we'll look at that, how, what performance tells us about that training session and then compare it with some of the metrics. And when we started to do that exercise where we compared what happened to performance after the session with the metrics for that session, then we started, started to spot some very obvious inconsistencies in those metrics. So they look like they're not doing their job properly. Uh, and of course, that's then a cause for concern because we can say, well, we know that this wasn't validated in the way we'd really like from a rigorous scientific perspective. And now what we're seeing is these metrics are maybe not telling us exactly what we thought they were. Yeah, you, you caught those, I think, a really smart way of, of quantifying how hard a session is, actually. And you called it the acute performance decrement or the APD. And uh, I think... Uh, I was I started to think about how how I feel after different sessions and 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 also comparing to things like training stress score. So for example, you can go out and do a four hour uh, fairly easy e easy ride, and uh, even though the intensity is low after that, uh, you don't really feel like doing a twenty minute all out test or something like that. Or you could do a one and a half hour 
workout with quite a bit of intensity. Let's say you do quite a bit of threshold intervals. And yeah, you would definitely feel it when you do a 20-minute test. But I think that quite often you, you might actually be able to to do better uh, after that that kind of session than the four-hour test. But you might have a similar amount of training stress score. I don't know. I was just, uh, if, if the numbers actually make sense. But there are, there are different different comparison cases that you could pick out and think about for yourself like these sessions give a similar amount of tss or that session gives more tss than the other and but yet i imagine that my performance would be drastically different after those two sessions so so that's essentially what you tested with with a, a number of different sessions exactly you again you've described it perfectly and um this is why i say that an experienced coach or an experienced athlete already knows that some of these scores were uh um deceiving us somewhat because they've experienced it themselves in just the way you've described. They've done something where they've been given a high score and gone, well, that actually wasn't too bad. It was a long session, but it was quite easy, for example. Whereas this short, really intense one, I'm now completely um, exhausted from that. I don't feel like doing anything at all, but the training stress score that I've been given or whatever the metric I'm using is, is much, much lower. So that then they're not necessarily agreeing with, with my experiences. And, and for very obvious comparisons, they tend to work fine. It's just the slightly less intuitive ones where they can be misleading. But of course, if you're trying to optimize someone's training program, that's still a little bit of deception that's hidden in your training. And if you pay too much attention to that, not enough attention to how you feel, then you're going to start to be led, then the potentials you'll start to be led astray. Yeah, and, and I think maybe maybe this is a good place to, to talk about. You, you found that changing duration versus changing intensity of sessions they caused, uh, yeah, that, that had an interesting effect on mm. how the performance decreased. So can you, can you explain that? Yeah, so this is where I try to avoid the numbers, so try and keep it in, in concepts if I can. But for a relatively long period of time now, we've known that as the intensity increases, so it, let's say, um, for example, I use um, Swift quite a lot with a home trainer. It's, it's great for a numbers geek like me. So I can control exactly how hard I'm riding. And I can increase the intensity by the same amount, let's say, every two or three minutes. So I do a training session that's gradually increasing, but by in a very, very steady, controlled manner. The physical stress that I'm experiencing, though, doesn't change in that same straightforward, li linear manner. But actually, once I reach a certain point, the stress starts to increase disproportionately. And I had a quick skim through your uh, podcast recently, and I noticed you were interviewing a former colleague of mine, Mark Burnley, the other day, and he yeah. was talking about the lactate threshold. Yeah. And so I imagine that one of the things that Mark may have been talking about, sorry, I haven't listened to the podcast, but was once you cross the lactate threshold, that intensity, then the, the effect of stress increases disproportionately. So at low intensities, you can increase the intensity and you get a kind of a dose response type of sensation where you increase it a little bit, it feels a little bit harder. Once you cross the lactate threshold, you increase a little bit, it feels a whole lot harder. Increase a little bit more, it feels even more um, stressful. So it, it, it completely falls out of um, proportion. And we've known about this for quite a long time. So many of the metrics that, that we use for training load recognize this. And for example, that's the premise behind the normalized power or the training stress score is that they, they, they treat the very high intensity work that, that we do as disproportionately stressful. And so I think for many people, we thought we'd, we'd kind of got a handle on that. Um, but it's, as you say, what we started to look at was the effect of duration as well. And that's where we realized that actually most people just intuitively perhaps haven't quite grasped the impact of duration in the way that is most helpful. 
Although experienced athletes, experienced coaches know this, even if they even if they can't express it numerically. So, the, the in in a nutshell, um, as we work harder, time seems to slow down. So you know, sometimes you could do a really intense ten or thirty second interval, and it feels like it takes forever. Whereas you could do a nice easy ride for 30 minutes or an hour and it, the time just floats by. And, and what we appreciated, and, and this is a, that, that, that example is my kind of really simple analogy. But what we appreciated is that time needs to be structured according to how hard the session is, n- not simply treated as, as if every second were the same. Sorry, can, can, you, can you clarify yes. that a bit more? Absolutely. So to come back to my previous example, which is harder, a five-minute session or a 20-minute session, when you do a maximum effort for both of those sessions? Well, it turns out it's a little bit of a trick question because what we actually studied this in um, Tony uh, Kessizogler, who's a PhD student who was working with me, now just recently passed his PhD. Um, so he gave people a five-minute training session and a 20-minute training session where they had to go as hard as they could for the training session. And then he measured their performance afterwards. And we found the performance dropped by the same amount, regardless of whether they did a five-minute or a 20-minute session. So this is kind of counterintuitive in one way because we go, well, the 20-minute session was an all-out session and it was as hard as they could go. So surely that's tougher. But of course, the five-minute session, because they can push themselves harder, because it's only five minutes, they kind of compensate for the shorter duration by going harder. So actually, what we, the way we have to think about this is what's the maximum effort you can do for a duration rather than um, the way that we typically think about it and then relate it back to that. So in the instance where you do 100% of your maximum effort for five minutes and 100% of your maximum effort for 20 minutes, the answer is those, those sessions very crudely are about the same uh, in terms of a training load. But we wouldn't see it that way for any of the metrics because all of our metrics would tell us that 20 minutes training session was four times longer than the five minute one. And it was only slightly uh, less intense um, because they were both maximal efforts. And the adjustments that people make to go from five to 20 minutes is actually fairly, is, is fairly small um, to enable us to carry on for that extra time. So most metrics don't capture the fact that actually the overall stress of those sessions is, is uh, actually surprisingly similar. Mm, yeah, no, that that makes sense. Uh, got it now, and uh, and I think when I read that, uh, I I kind of started to think about how you could you could interpret that in two different ways. Uh, if you were so inclined, you could interpret that to mean that well, actually, I could accumulate a lot of training stress score by doing really short, really intense workouts, and that's kind of the modern time crunched training philosophy yes. that we we see a lot on on the internet and and on twitter and where have you uh, and well i i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily prescribe to that philosophy myself uh the way i would think about it is perhaps that you can uh you can basically afford to accumulate more training time by controlling your intensity better to so think about it the other way not how do you maximize training load but actually how can you train without it costing you too much and that that intensity is so much more costly than the duration it's disproportionately more costly that to increase intensity than to increase duration that that would be that was kind of the angle that i and this is not i don't want to put words in your mouth and say that this is the truth but that's kind of what i started thinking about when when i read that part of your paper 
Uh, th- and th- that's a- exactly right. Uh, and uh, apologies to your listeners because you've made a logical leap there in twisting the story to to pull out that thread. Which it it we have the benefit of having sat and thought about this for a period of time. So it, it, you're somebody just coming to this for the first time may need to sit and think about this for a little while. But essentially, what we're saying is a five minute training session where you go as hard as you can could be the same as a two hour training session where you where you go as hard as you can in terms of how stressful you find it. Because for two hours, you're going to go at a much lower intensity. And so as you're saying, yes, you could meter out your effort. Um, and let's say rather than doing a 100% session, you want to do an 80% of your maximum session. So you can go 80% of your maximum for five minutes, which is going to be quite a high power output or high running speed or high swim speed. Or you could spread it out over an hour or two hours, of, uh, but 80% of the maximum of that speed for two hours, mm. which is going to feel a lot easier, but will gradually wear you down with the duration rather than the intensity. Yeah. So the costs of duration um, uh, uh, yeah, works very differently from the cost of intensity. And, and I think the, the other thing that we need to clarify here is that uh, this we're also kind of assuming here that just because you get equal an equal training load or an equal performance decrement uh, the way that you designed those studies yes. it doesn't mean that you get an equal response to training we we don't assume that that is the case because then you could then you then you could say that okay uh, if if we automatically assume that the the more tired you get from training the better your results would be then it would make sense to go all out for a short period of time if you want to be really time effective but that's i think the the assumption that we're not making here that there is that, that causation that that's that's true that that's one of the uncomfortable bits about this because training load started from a scientific point of view about predicting changes in performance and actually we may need to let go of that a little bit because it's it seems sensible to say even if the stress the body experiences is in some way equivalent for a five minute session and a two hour session the adaptations that come from them are likely to be somewhat different so we can't say that we can just swap a two-hour session for a five-minute session because they have the same training load. They're, they're going to work slightly differently. But we might be able to understand a little more clearly what the relative challenge of those different sessions is. And then that, might, in turn, may help us structure our training in more effective ways or find more effective ways to do it. And, of course, so far, we've talked about continuous exercise where you imagine somebody doing one effort all the way through. It becomes even more complicated when we think about intervals because then you have to think about the time spent at the high intensity of the interval and the lower intensity interval and how you accumulate all that. And, and the, again, this is where um, some of the, mis- the, the insidious effects of this creep in. So we see a lot of times people saying, well, high intensity interval training is very effective and sometimes even more effective than endurance training. But what they've done is they've kept the time basis the same or the amount of work the same. And so if you've only got a certain amount of time, of course, the high intensity training is going to be more effective if you've only got a certain amount of time. But not everybody wants to train that way or indeed needs to train that way. And if you've got more time and you can train at lower intensities, then you can be just as effective as a high intensity interval training um, approach. But without going to the high intensity interval training, you can keep that um, powder dry and use it much later on in your program, for example, or a different point. But you can get to the same the same fitness benefits from doing a completely different session. And this is where some of those misnomers have been perpetuated by science because they're going, well, when we incorrectly apply the training load, we give what we say is two equivalent training sessions. But now we know they're not actually. And unsurprisingly, the high intensity one comes out better. So everybody says we must do high intensity interval training. It's like, well, no, actually what's happened here is you haven't equated these two sessions appropriately. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, And one other thing that came to mind when I was reading your paper is that uh, 
with the the way that you measure the acute performance decrement, um, how did you decide to measure? Was it measured immediately after after the session was finished? Uh-huh. Because that's something that I was thinking about. Would there be a difference yes. if you compare it immediately after the session, or let's say twenty four hours after the session, or twelve uh-huh. hours? Or I know. Uh, absolutely, um, and, and these are so you're now moving into the I, the area where the, where the answer to your questions are. I don't know, um, but the, we 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 did leave a five minute gap from the end of the session before they had to do the performance trial for a couple of different reasons. Um, the main one was a purely scientific design one, where we wanted to take some measurements at the end of the training session, and if we'd started the performance trial straight away, we wouldn't have had time to take all the measurements we we needed. Um, the other one was that we we were concerned that uh, motivation and pacing are important aspects for a performance trial, and, and therefore we just wanted to give the participants a moment to kind of gather themselves and prepare for a for a, for a maximum effort where they have to pace themselves and extend a, a maximum effort. So there were a couple of reasons why we we put that gap in. Now naturally, if we had removed it, so we got somebody to go straight from the training session into the performance trial, their performance would actually have been shown to decline a little bit more, but. Because we've given everybody in under every circumstance exactly the same relatively short recovery period, we hope that the impact of that recovery period is approximately the, 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 the same. And so we can kind of ignore it. It does make a difference to performance for sure. I, you know, I would expect that, but hopefully it doesn't make a huge difference. Now, if we delayed it for 24 hours, the tricky bit we've now got is we're now thinking about recovery too. Uh, in a big picture way. And of course, that's impacted by a whole number of different things. So the physiology of the athlete, the nutrition status of the athlete, what other things they have to do in that time, their general stress, health, sleep, and so forth. So there's an enormous number of different variables that start to creep in there. Um, uh, but that is the kind of approach that Bannister originally took, was that he was doing these very regular performance trials in order to try and track what happened to an athlete's performance over a period of time. And it's a big problem in science because we'd love to be able to get a picture of some the evolution of someone's performance in minute detail over a period of time. But the problem, obviously, is that people just don't want to do performance trials all the time, quite understandably. Um, and and um, therefore, we, we, we have to try and guess what that picture looks like. So looking at 24 hours afterwards is kind of like a different question. It's kind of moving into recovery and it's thinking about the program as a whole. What we were interested in was trying to highlight this specific issue about how we quantify one training session, and then we'll leave for the future the question about how you then construct training programs and how you put sessions back to back. We we haven't even tra- scraped the surface of that yeah. one. We're really just trying to think about what happens in a single session. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And of course, from a scientific point of view, um, yeah, if, if you would have done it 24 hours later, that would have uh, come with a whole host of of other issues and factors you control for. Uh, but it is interesting to think about how, how you feel after yes. the day after an hour-long session full of high-intensity intervals versus a four-hour easy ride. We, again, you might have a similar, it, it, exactly. similar decrease yes. right after the session, but but the recovery uh, 24 hours later might be might be different. From those two types well, of and these are the kinds of th- these are the kinds of questions that a practitioner, a coach, an athlete needs to have an answer to. It, but science has gone has gone very little way to actually providing any useful insight here. Yeah. So, you know, we, we still don't know the answer to these and questions from a scientific basis. But a, a coach or an athlete has to make those decisions on a daily basis. And I think that's what we should highlight with this. Uh, if uh, so, so, so the listeners follow us, that you didn't. Uh, construct these studies to create a new training load the acute performance decrement was meant to be a way that 
other well current training load metrics and future ones could could use that as a gold standard to compare against because obviously it's not practical for an athlete to do a performance test after every workout so so that's not how thank you and this is that's that's really important and and even banister knew this he writes about it in his papers in the in the 80s and 90s that that it's just not practical to try and do regular performance trials no athlete wants to do it it's too disruptive to their training so it's really part of a scientific methodology rather than a a practical tool Um, but it would be really interesting if we could actually predict what that performance change would be from a, from a different from a scientific basis. Then that might be a useful way of looking at things. But yeah, I certainly am not advocating that athletes go out and do lots of performance trials, um, either to the athlete or their coaches. Yeah. So so if uh, you have found that the current training load metrics that exist today don't work well, um, what do you think that the future holds for training load? the concept and the, and yes. the metrics. So w- when I first started, um, the pure scientist in me said, well, the, the basis by which science um, progresses is that we put forward theories or hypotheses. So for example, we put forward a theory about training load and how we can calculate someone's training load. And then we test that with a scientific experiment. And science surprisingly progresses by disproving those theories. So in a purist point of view, my, 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 my mind was, well, we've now disproved that training load does anything like what we think it does. Therefore, we should discard this hypothesis. So the pure scientist in me would say we should stop talking about training load and we should, we should start again. Uh, but I have been convinced by my colleagues that that, that might be um, a, a kind of purist scientific perspective, but it's probably not entirely practical or pragmatic and maybe unnecessary. So in the, in the medium term, I think what we can do is look at those metrics and see can we calculate them more appropriately? And can we use them in a way that we're just more aware of what their limitations are so that, that, that we can be guided by them, we can make decisions that are informed by them, but we don't necessarily base our decisions entirely on them. And, and the way in which they're calculated is a little more insightful. And then the other thing we can do is think about, well, what else can we use as well alongside it? So if training load doesn't give us the whole picture, the whole story, what, what else should we, should we be thinking about and, and open up that discussion? So again, I don't necessarily have all of the answers, but I, obviously it's something I've thought about a little bit. So I, you know, I have s- some thoughts on that. But the first one would be, can we make the training load metrics a little bit better in terms of their ability to reflect how hard the different training sessions are and and to be clear if you're comparing two training sessions where you're only changing one thing if you if the duration is the same and the intensity changes or the intensity um, is the same and the duration changes the metrics are fairly straightforward for that it's when both things change when you've got a different intensity and a different duration and you're trying to weigh up which is the harder one and that particularly happens with intervals as well then that's where it becomes really problematic and actually the calculations can be quite misleading at times yeah yeah and you also point out that uh Things like total work done, so the kilojoules expended in the workout, uh, doesn't work either. You you did test that, and that is something that yes. I have actually used as a coach to some extent more so than training stress score. I figured out quite some time ago that I don't think it works, especially not in triathlon when we have di- three different sports. So, but but I did, uh, and I think I have been talking about this on the podcast. I I have put some stock in in total work done. So for me, it was quite uh, interesting and uh, and good to see that well you actually tested that too and yeah you found that the same problems exist for uh for work as as for the other training load metrics yes i think maybe one way of thinking about it is if you were to game the system so imagine that you're a somewhat devious athlete 
and you were trying to score brownie points with your coach by accumulating total work done, then you think about, well, well, how would I do this? As I'm not worried about getting fit anymore. I'm just worried about get, getting the maximum brownie points from my coach. What you would do is you'd go very easy, but for very long periods of time. So you'd accumulate huge amounts of total work done, but it wouldn't actually be very stressful. You could walk everywhere and keep doing it and keep keep walking, keep walking and just accumulate as much work as possible. But you're not going to get very fit from doing that. And that's the problem with total work done is that it rewards excessively large training sessions at low intensities compared to really tough but short, intense ones. It doesn't actually weigh them up. So if you want to win in the total work done, you just make the sessions longer and a little bit easier. And you only need to make them a little bit easier and, and you can go quite a lot longer. So that's the problem in a nutshell with total work done is it, it, it misses out the, the, the way in which the relationship between how hard you work and how long you need to work changes. Mm, yeah, but and that, but that also highlights another problem that I think we have in in the endurance athlete society, which is just that a lot of people assume that your goal is to maximize your training load or your chronic yes. training load, which is which exactly. which is not always the case either. So. No, it, it kind of explains both things at, at once in a way because if you go for a if you if you train longer naturally you're going to accumulate more time in training but you're probably also as a consequence of just being out training longer going to accumulate a little bit more intensity over that longer training session there'll just be moments where you work a bit harder um, and gradually those intensity intense moments will accumulate so you'll have got a little bit of a little bit of intensity in there so the question is well if you just pulled out those intense moments and got rid of all of the volume could you have had the same training benefit And and this way of looking critically at training load suggests that there may be some value in looking at it that way. Can you actually just extract out the 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 the, the qualities uh, part of it? But it's not quality in the sense of it's all about the intensity. It's quality for the length of time you're exercising for. So this is the tricky bit. This is where five minutes maximum is the same as 20 minutes maximum. You can choose whether you do a five minute maximum effort or a 20 minute maximum effort. They're they're both. E In, in, from a training load perspective, likely to be equally valuable. Five minutes isn't a shortcut to 20 because they're both tough sessions. They're just different. Um, and so if you do a very long session, you can do a very long, very hard session, or you can do a very long, very easy session, just as you can do a very short, easy session and a very short, uh, hard session. So, you know, it, it's not that a long session is better or worse. It's just it's easier to deceive ourselves with a with a long session that we got some value from it because we've probably accumulated some bits along the way that are worthwhile, even whether we intended to or not. With a short session, there's no there's no hiding from it. You've either gone out and you've worked hard or you haven't. So you, you can kind of see more clearly where the benefits lie in a shorter session. Yeah, I, th I think that <laughs> all of these uh, examples, they, they do... Kind of highlight how you can really you have or up until now if we have since since people have assumed that the training load concept is valid and the training load, load metrics are valid it can be used to validate your own narrative of the training process however you like uh so which um yeah i i've another reason that i think that it was really good that that to see yes. you try really critically approaching 
whether they are actually valid or not. Um, but and, and, it, and, and sorry, Michael, just to interrupt you for a second, there, and it will still take us some time before we get some clarity on this. So, yeah. for example, I've had colleagues reach out to me since we published the review, raising questions and concerns. And, and you know, it will be a while before we're able to unpick this fully and, and, and come up with some sort of consensus from, a, from the scientific community. So really, we've opened the box the kind of worms. But in terms of reaching a conclusion, we're a long way from that. And leading the way will be the coaches and the practitioners because they have to wrestle with these questions on a daily basis, whereas the scientists are more steeped in the theory of it. Yeah. And and here's a tricky one as well to think about, uh, a theoretical one for you, uh, which I know that you don't know, but you can speculate. So the impact of which intensity domain you're exercising in. So so that's where, yes. it, yeah, it might be as we talked about five minutes all out and 20 minutes all out and they're both in the severe intensity domain so so they might be more or less the same in terms of training load and in terms of adaptations but then when you do an hour all out in the in the heavy domain even though let's say theoretically we have you haven't tested that but let's say that you might get the same uh performance decrease in the performance trial so same training load but the adaptations are not necessarily the same because you're in a completely different intensity domain. Yes. So um, I have kind of two um, almost paradoxical answers to this. So the first one is, uh, ironically, I'm not interested in domains particularly. So I, I think that, that they, they, can, they can be um, uh, importantly distracting from the training prescription process. Because what I'm trying to say here is that, that, that what we're seeing from this dissection of training load is that actually you need to think about how hard somebody works together with how long they work for and this the implication of that if it's correct and i don't know that it's correct but the implication of this if it's correct is that as long as you match the right duration with the right intensity they can all be successful whether it's moderate hard heavy severe you can actually get fitter by in by combining the right balance of duration and intensity now if you're exercising the moderate domain you're going to need to exercise for a long period of time if you're in the severe domain, you're not going to be able to exercise for very long at all. So it's kind of more clear cut in the severe because it's just a short, hard effort. But it's still possible to get the benefits, I suspect, in the moderate domain. You're just going to have to do an awful lot more. And the way that we typically calculate it probably underestimates how much more you need to do in the moderate domain. So on the one hand, I'd actually say the domains are kind of irrelevant. You can exercise where you want, but you need to find the right duration for that intensity. The second point, though, that you made, I completely agree with, is that logically, if you spend a lot of time training at a moderate intensity, you're going to get different training adaptations from that compared to spending a lot of time training in a severe domain or doing sprint training or something like that. So I think kind of the, the short term training consequences are you can get fit in a lot of different ways. The longer term consequences are you want to think about which aspects of your fitness you build up because you're, you're likely to be accumulating the benefits much more specifically in that domain. So if you don't do high intensity intervals, you're not going to get, be as good at high intensity intervals. Um, whereas someone who does lots of long, steady endurance work will be much better at that. So, you know, that, that that's the trade-off. And I think when people race, this is what different athletes work out about each other. They kind of test each other out. What kind of an athlete are you? If I'm going to break you, how do I do it? Do I just keep grinding away because I've got fantastic endurance, but I don't have the resilience at the top end? Or 
I, am I up against someone who's a, who's you know, you know a, a real endurance fiend themselves, and I need to find ways of in, injecting extra intensity to try and break the, break them down or use a burst of speed at the end? So you know that's where the kind of competition comes out, and where you're exploring the weaknesses and strengths that have been developed in training. So there's an element of both I'm having there. I think I'm not convinced there's a magical intensity, but I do think we need to compare intensity and duration together. And I don't think that most people have been doing that very effectively up to now. Um, but at the same time, I do believe in specificity of training too. And so if I do a lot of one minute intervals, I get much better at one minute intervals. I don't necessarily get better at 20 minute intervals. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Uh, even though I, I do, I do believe in the like, well, specificity like you, but also that there are different adaptations in different domains, different fatigue mechanisms. So there might be different, uh, yeah, different ways that the stress impacts you. But but also, I, I would say when you were talking there, I started thinking that there might also be um, an an effect there of what the level of athlete is. So, for example, for somebody who's a beginner, yes. then it probably doesn't matter at all. Like, however you get build that load in terms of combination of duration and intensity, they will get fitter. But then as somebody is close to their genetic potential, that's when yeah, you really need to figure out what is it, where do they still have some room to improve? What are the, the one percenters that we can work on? And, and that's where maybe no matter how much load you give them, you need to give them the right type of load. That, that's kind of where, where I was thinking as well when you were, uh, when you were talking about that. Mm. No, you're you're absolutely absolutely right, and I think this is one of those areas where, from a scientific perspective, we don't have any answers yet. So I think as coaches and athletes, we recognise the different types of athletes that we work with. Let's say someone's more of a, uh, to use Steve Magnus's kind of description, a, a slow twitch athlete or a fast twitch athlete. And if you've got a fast twitch athlete, you train them one way. If you've got a slow twitch athlete, you train them a different way because you know that that's most likely to enable them to move on a little bit. And the training load. That, that that supplied there it, it may be exactly the same but what it looks like as a training program could be completely different and that's the challenge for the coach or the athlete is to find what that combination of training stresses are that work well for the individual athletes yeah no i completely agree completely agree um let me see here uh, if there's anything still to address with the training load i'm just going to look through the questions well i guess um as a re final recommendation for uh, athletes and for coaches listening to this in the current landscape what what is your advice to them and recommendations regarding how to use and how yeah. not to use training load so I, I mean i think if you're a numbers kind of person then the the way that you can do it is start to automatically make the corrections in, in either with the the data you're working with or just in your head in terms of thinking about how hard that session was relative to how hard it could have been for its duration so you're basically saying um relative to the maximum i could have done in that time how hard was this so that would be a, for a numbers geek kind of person so so let's 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 take way. an example let's say you have a two hour you do a two hour right. bike ride and and you your your power is 250 watts but you know that you could do 300 watts for two hours so then you were at what, exactly. whatever whatever so that is so then you're working it out as that percentage. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, absolutely. And in that way, I think you'll probably get a bit closer towards the, the true training load um, than, than the metrics will, will tell you. So that, that would be for the, the more numbers-oriented person. I think for a less numbers-oriented person, I think it would just be to treat the, the current metric, to continue to use the current metrics, but, but treat them with a little bit of caution. So say, okay, these numbers are here to help me make decisions 
but I don't base my decisions entirely on these numbers. So I, you know, I kind of go, how reasonable does this number look? Is it giving me some useful information? And therefore I can build that into my decision making about whether I should do the same again, whether I need an easy day, whether I need to, whatever the decision you're trying to make is. Um, so just using a little bit of skepticism in the, in the, um, in how you interpret that, that data. And then the other thing is then to think about, well, um, really, what we're talking about is an environment where you, there's lots of different bits of data that you're trying to pull together to, to um, help influence your decisions about whether you're doing enough, too much, not enough, and, or risking injury and those kind of things. What other things could be valuable? And so um, a couple of things that, that I've looked at, both that we report in, the, um, in this review paper, but also one that we don't really talk on so much is emotion. And actually... You can score your emotion as kind of zero being a neutral emotion and then up to five as being really positive emotion. So you're feeling really good, really positive. Or if you're feeling downbeat, depressed, negative as minus five. So you get a scale from minus five to plus five with naught being just a kind of neutral emotion. And we found that emotion can be surprisingly sensitive. And it's not something that people automatically associate with a training session. So we're used to thinking about how hard you're working, what the effort is. And so people tend to be, uh, they, they sometimes can, can kind of give you the, the rote answer on that because they just know what the correct answer is. But if you ask someone how they're feeling, are you feeling a little up? Are you feeling a little down? Are you feeling neutral? You can kind of get a, a, a bit of more sensitive in, information on how hard that session is or was or where someone where someone's at with that so that may be useful either for self-reflection for an athlete or particularly for coaches that are trying to gauge where an athlete is but what we tend to see is athletes start to struggle and fatigue their emotion levels drop uh, and and they start to go to neutral and then negative if the, if the session is getting hard so there are a couple of different ways of thinking about um the way forward there that, that i just thought I'd, I'd throw in for you yeah no that's great and uh, and what are you and your uh, group going to be working on what what are the next projects that you have on this topic yeah well we've we've got one study in the similar in the similar um ilk of the ones that we reviewed still to write up and publish so as i mentioned tony who i've been working with um he's just finished his phd now and so the final chapter is study we we want to write up which is essentially verifying a different twist but on the same story Going forward, what would be lovely would be to start to unpick what these, how these metrics could be made more effective. So if, if we're saying that the, the way that duration intensity interact is, is not quite correct, can we introduce some of those corrections so that that can happen almost automatically? Um, and so that's something I'd love to work on. The, the challenge that I've got is, I, I mean, I'm affiliated with the University of Calgary and the University of Kent, but I don't have my own lab. So I'm not necessarily in a position where I can plan to go into the lab tomorrow and start conducting this experiment straight away. So I have to kind of work with colleagues and collaborate and that kind of thing. So it may take a little bit of time. But for me, that would be a really interesting question going forward is to look at how we can refine these metrics. Um, and my dream has always been that we can use artificial intelligence and algorithms and things to help optimize people's training. And, and so I think that in order to be able to optimize people's training, we need to really crack this question first of, how you weigh up a single training session before you can then think of extending that to a whole training program. So that's kind of the broad direction that I'd love to head in with all the caveats that I've already given, that, that you, you will never be in a situation where you replace a coach. Rather, what you're trying to do is to give the coach information to help them base their, their coaching decisions upon. Yeah, but that's an interesting thing that you bring up there with artificial intelligence because there are software out there that do that today already, but a lot of them uh, that I'm aware of, they base their calculations on on basically 
the banister model, trimp model, or uh, TSS model, exactly. which you have yes. shown that yeah have very yeah. very big limitations and uh, don't always. And, and the other, absolutely, and the other challenge we face with artificial intelligence as well is that it can only really model what you put in. So let's say the best training session for an individual has still to be recognized, and we they haven't done it yet. The artificial intelligence can't find that training session because they haven't done it. It's not in the repository for them to pull out. So there's an extent to which artificial in training, uh, sorry, artificial intelligence is looking backwards at the data we've got, but it can't tell us what we should do going forwards necessarily. It can just tell us how we could have done the journey back that we've already done more effectively. Yeah. So there's still, I mean, I, I think there's some really interesting opportunities there, but there's still... Um, definitely scope for people to completely change the landscape as we look at training going forwards by innovating and experimenting. Yeah, and then if, if I can dream as a coach what the scientific community would would work on as well, it would be trying to link uh, the the training load with actual response to training and performance changes and adaptations. That, that is the dream because that's anecdotally yes. something that I've seen too many times to count that uh, reducing training load leads to better performance with a lot of athletes. And and that's uh, one of the, yeah, I guess one of the paradoxes of today when uh, there is a lot of a lot of talk uh, and discourse about maximizing training load and getting to a certain CTL and, and what have you to, to be at your best. But that's really, in my experience, not, not always the case. Yes, no, I completely agree, completely agree. Uh, and, and thank you for that note on, uh, in terms of what the, the guidance too. I'll yeah. keep that in mind always. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so let's, let's get that, uh, a couple of general questions and, and the one that uh, we kind of teased at the beginning. So what are a couple of things when you have been consulting with uh, exercise physiologists and scientists that work directly with high-performance athletes? Uh, can you give some examples of uh, yeah, what, just the, the types of things that you've been helping these? scientists with even if it's just kind of on a broad theme um usually uh, it, it's it's not very sexy or exciting so usually it's working as a critical friend so kind of like the way that we've been discussing today on this podcast I, you know I, I may be saying okay so if you're helping the athletes by doing this you know what, what what are the potential benefits what are the risks of what you're doing and just asking awkward questions poking around uh, have you thought about doing it this way what about doing it that way what, what what are the things that hold you back and ironically often even though i'm largely working with physiologists it's usually about the implementation of strategies so it often comes back to working with people uh, people skills psychology even philosophy becomes important in these things so that it, it's such a kind of wide net of things that we try and do to en enhance athletes um, performance and and ultimately what we're really doing if you kind of boil it down is we're influencing someone's behavior at the end of the day so although we're trying to start from a physiological basis you go a long way from okay here's the physiology um, science the hard science the theory when you translate that into practice you move a long way from that theory so there's an awful lot of scope for for different kinds of interventions in there um, but at, at the same time that there may be times when you're just saying simple things like you know okay what are different ways in which you could increase the stress for this athlete um, without necessarily um, overloading them in, in uh, on the things that that um, are most important so let's say with a sailor we know a sailor needs to be really fit in order to, to sail effectively but what kind of fitness do they need and how can they generate that and what can they do on the land to recreate their fitness or to, to generate further fitness that will impact on their sailing 
rather than things they do on the land that will make no difference whatsoever to their sailing. And how do you measure that kind of stuff? So those kinds of nitty gritty questions uh, are one thing. Uh, another thing I did is I worked with one of the Olympic teams where they had gone to a test event for the Olympics and they had the race data for, the, for that race. So they knew how hard the race was based on the test event. And then I helped them to compare what they did in training as a gap analysis to say, okay, this is how hard the race is. How does your training match up in terms of preparing for you for that, for that race? Now, this was an Olympic team preparing for the Olympic Games, and there were some very obvious gaps in their training. So by taking the, the test event, using that as a template, and then comparing their training against it, we could actually spot the gaps and then devise training programs to fill those gaps to enable them to be better prepared. Yeah. Uh, so just a couple of very different examples for you. Yeah, no, th those are good. And I, I told you before before we started into you that I have an engineering background. So a gap analysis is something that uh, I have taken with me from that background into my coaching. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of doing that. Uh, so yes. yeah, no, that's a great, great example, bo both of them. And uh, another general question would be if you could give three pieces of advice uh, for the listeners uh, that would help them improve their endurance performance, uh, what would that be? Um, well, I, I guess so. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll restrict it to two because one of the things I've, I've mentioned quite a lot already, which is I think that training is a lot about making decisions. So, um, but I guess what that boils down to, and I think it was Winston Churchill who gave this quote where he said, planning is essential, but plans are useless. And, and it, it's, it's kind of recognizing that the value of a coach is helping you set out the plan, but also recognizing that at some point your coach is not a soothsayer or a fortune teller. They can't predict everything that's going to happen to you. And at some point you may need to change your plans too. And that's an important part of it. So as Churchill said, the planning process is a critical part of it, but the plan itself is ultimately going to prove itself useless because there will probably be a point where you need to change it and trying to recognize that point is, is key. And that's where, for me, the data comes in. It's trying to help you recognize whether you're on track with the plan and you stick with it or things have changed so much that you need to move away from it in which direction you need to move. So that would be one one thing. The other part would be um, just that general encouragement. And as an academic, you could say, well, you would say this, wouldn't you? But keep learning would be another thing that, that I'd say, you know, so um, we, we are a long way from ever knowing all we need to know about this, this, this journey. And it's different for every single athlete. And for each athlete, it changes where they find themselves. So if their fitness changes or their circumstances change, it changes. And then the other little bit that, that goes with that, that I find that I struggled with, particularly when I was an athlete, and I wish I'd embrace more, was to test different ideas with safe to fail experiments. So I wasn't very innovative. I would try and pick a program and work with it and persist doggedly with it. And then that, that was it. There was nothing else that, that I would allow on my radar. But now I'm much more interested in trying out different things. What would it look like if I did it like this? What would it look like if I did it like that? What would it look like if I tried something completely different to see how I respond to that? But to do it in a way where it, it's safe to fail. So I'm not jeopardizing the whole program, but just making small changes to see what differences they make. So Testing ideas with safe-to-fail experiments is, is another thing that I wish I'd experimented more with myself as an, as an athlete because maybe I could have found ways that I could have improved my performance by d using different training approaches than the ones I stuck to rather too rigidly. Mm. Yeah, no, those are all, all great uh, pieces of advice and uh, keep learning. Well, Louis, you've certainly helped us do that today. So, so thank you for that. It's been really great. Uh, but before we uh, finish, uh, let's uh, do the rapid fire question. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Okay, you gave me a heads up on this. And this, it, it was still a horrible question. 
as a as a um a professor i te- i love mccardle catch and catch is a physiology textbook and astron and rodal is a classic textbook um but it, for something more readable i've recently read alex H- alex hutchinson who if you follow him on twitter he sweat science his book endure which is really good too so yeah. really nice well grounded science book so that, that would be my rapid Yeah. answers he's the first guest on the podcast and uh that book and your is the most voted uh answer to this question out of all the oh no really all the interviews oh, that i've done <laughs> well it's good uh, another another vote yeah. of confidence and uh may, maybe at some point <laughs> i'll start getting a commission or something from alex <laughs> uh, uh what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically professionally or personally Um, so you, you've actually answered it with the previous question, which is reading. Uh, that, without question, that's what I'd encourage people to. Yeah, whatever you can get your hands on. And uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? That's so tricky because there are legends in science, in physiology, in cycling, and and sport generally. Um, but but the really heartwarming one for me is actually I have three daughters who are just beginning their to to branch out into their own careers. Uh, one maybe in, in one in sports science themselves, and, and um, actually the, the the way in which they move positively into this world and the way they look to create changes in their different fields is is, is one of the things that really inspires me. So the youth of today actually is something that really inspires me, and the opportunities that they create and the change that they bring. Fantastic. And uh, finally, uh, where can listeners find you online or on social media? Uh, or, and is there anything else that you want to uh, uh-huh. talk about or plug? Uh, no, there's nothing I want to plug. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm, I'm always happy to, to deal with in questions and queries. You can find me on on Twitter. Uh, well, probably simplest way is if you Google me, I should think you'll come up with contact details for me. But I'm on Twitter. Trainalytics is my uh, uh, Twitter handle. Or if you have my email address, which I'm happy for you to put in your link afterwards uh, for this podcast. Yeah, it's on the, feel free to, yeah, to I'll, I'll put yeah, the link to the, free to the university me. university bio page where, okay. where the email I, I'm yeah. I'm happy for you to put yeah. my email address on there, and if anyone's got any questions, then please feel free to reach out to me. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, Louis. It was uh, really great. Keep up the great work, and I'm looking forward to uh, chatting to you again another time. It's a pleasure, and the same, Michael. Thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed this. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, I'll have links to Louis' Twitter and uh, his email, as well as uh, all of the papers discussed. So the main paper that we had as the the basis for the interview here was is called Validity of the Training Load Concept, and that is open access. So just check the link in the in the show notes or the episode description but i will link also to a bunch of the other studies that we mentioned there where the various experiments that uh louis lab has been conducting and also i will link to related episodes that we mentioned previous guests on that triathlon show and uh, i will have to admit that i uh, somehow threw away the paper where i noted down which episodes to link to so i might have missed one but you can always just uh, go to scientifictriathlon.com open the search bar which is right at the top of the website on all of the pages and uh, just type in the name of the guest or the episode name that you're looking for and you should be able to find it very easily Uh, so yeah if there's something that i missed just follow that methodology and you should be fine 
If you want to improve your triathlon performance and you want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or training plan. Whether you're just getting into triathlon, trying to qualify for a world championship event, or even want to race professionally, we have experience in all of those scenarios and we would love to discuss further around if and how we can help you on your triathlon journey. Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what's best for you. Next Monday, I interview Reto Brendley, who's a Swiss, Swiss triathlon coach, a coaching athlete such as Imogen Simmons. He also has a great expertise in testing and diagnostics for endurance performance. So we'll talk with him about both his general perspectives on coaching, as well as getting some specific uh, tips and thoughts on uh, testing for triathletes and for endurance performance. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and individualize your plan with the help of a free video consultation with the team at Precision Fuel and Hydration. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and sunglasses and prescription glasses. And use the promo code that you can get on roka.com for slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.